0: Welcome to Books in the Fraser, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today I'm joined by author Preston Fossil, and we are going to tackle a topic that has been requested probably since the dawn of this podcast, and that is body horror. <laughs> so Preston, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Oh, man. So... What is it about body horror that you think is just effective in horror in general?
1: It's something that's so intimate and so personal to all of us. Um, Most of us will probably never visit a haunted house. We'll never encounter, you know, uh, terrible aliens intent on using us as breeding pods. Um, We're we're never going to encounter cursed mummies or vampires. But I think that everybody lives with some kind of fear of something happening to them physically, be that in a car crash or some kind of violent incident. It's a very intimate, familiar and very real and possible horror for us to encounter.
0: What is something that like ekes you out personally. Like in body horror. Like when you sense it coming in a movie, you're like, No
1: <laughs> No I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty tough about stuff like that. Um, actually, for the longest time, I wanted to go into forensic psychology, and I went on this campaign to desensitize myself. I, I worked in a police evidence room for eighteen months as an intern oh, wow. after yeah after I got out of college, and like I would look at the crime scene photos, and I would like look at stuff like that, and a lot of that's like seeing that in the movie doesn't ick me out so much it's more stuff having to do with disability with losing like the, the the function of the body being paralyzed in some way stuff like that stuff you don't necessarily see but stuff that immobilizes and like renders you unable to like care for yourself in certain ways or takes away like the number of places you can go the things that you can do that's, very quiet, very subtle sorts of thing is much more disturbing to me personally than like seeing James Wood's abdomen get turned into a vaginal VCR or you know, Jeff Goldblum's body like turning into like some goo thing in the fly.
0: Like the more haunting realities of like what could actually happen to us.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I guess like uh, my, my mother was a uh, an aide in a nursing home and was a uh, nurse's aide. And I uh, I volunteered in a nursing home during college. And so icky biological stuff like doesn't gross me out that much. Like Boils and pus and blood. It's its just, you know, to me, it's it's biology. I was one class away from having a biology major in college. So I see that in a movie and there's like this degree of familiarity to it. It's like, okay, you know, we've all had boils. We've all had, you know, big pimples that have <laughs> burst. Uh, we've, we've all gotten food poisoning and gotten sick. To me, there's a familiarity and like an almost naturalness to that.
0: I feel you. Like mine, I think, is... As silly as it is, like, shaving scenes and not just, like, the cabin fever shaving scene, which, like, yes, that one. (laughs) But I think, you know, like, the horror music is, like, ramping up and someone's just got, like, a straight razor. And I'm like, no, stop it.
1: You've got me on that one because of all the different types of razors that I have tried to use to shave over the years. I've never done the straight razor because I just know my dumb ass, I would be like the one person every year who ends up slitting their own throat (laughs) trying to shave.
0: Would you go to a place, though, where they have the trained people doing it?
1: It'd be my luck that I'd be the one person (laughs) who dies by somebody else's hand every year getting shaved with a straight razor. (laughs) You'll get someone on their first day. Either that or it's like the guy who's been doing this for 30 years and has never had an accident, and then he like sneezes or like he sees something shocking on the news just as it's hovering over my Adam's (laughs) apple. And like the guy's telling the police, like, you know, 30 minutes later, I've been doing this for 30 years. This has never happened before. And they're carting my body out on the (laughs) stretcher.
0: Oh, man. I can see that. Um, So you said there's a bit of body horror elements in your upcoming novel. Is that correct?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I tweeted about this as a joke the other day. I uh, I was having a conversation with my wife and I was saying, you know, I need to be able to talk about this book and like talk around the fact that my main character gets transformed into a dinosaur. And my wife says, well, you you say he gets turned into a dinosaur on the second page. How much, how much of a spoiler is that, really? So, so yeah, it's, it's a story. Of, it's... I'm very interested in Greek myth and uh, Greek and Roman mythology. I saw Clash of the Titans when I was probably four or five years old and just fell in love with Medusa. And from that point forward, I was just enthralled by Greek myth. And it was conscious with my first book and slightly less conscious with the books that I've written after that but everything that I've written always has some elements of Greek or Roman mythology incorporated into it and Quentin Serginov is my sort of bizarro take on uh, Ovid's Metamorphosis and it is about like bodily transformation and a human being becoming something that's very decidedly inhuman and what the ramifications of that would be.
0: Interesting like I guess I mean you just pitched it to us. (laughs) i'm sure people heard like turning into dinosaur and they are like looking at it right now
1: (laughs) it's this is the thing i i feel very confident about all of my writing the one thing that i wish were different is that i wrote stuff that was easily summarizable in like a one sentence imdb summary but nothing i've ever written has been um so so it's about uh it's about a pro wrestler at the height of the 1990s pro wrestling boom and he, he is closeted, he's gay, and he and another one of uh, his co-workers have an affair. and he only he is outed, and he's blacklisted from the Wrestling Federation. And after that, he ends up being transformed into a dinosaur. He makes an attempt to reintegrate into society as a dinosaur. It fails terribly. And then he embarks on a very ill-advised quest to reunite with his ex-lover.
0: Oh, interesting. This sounds like, yeah, a very wild ride, <laughs> to say the least. It's,
1: it is the zaniest thing I've ever written. I, I don't normally do comedy. I have a very idiosyncratic and very specific and weird sense of humor that I'm curious to see. If it translates to other people, most of the time, if there is humor in my stuff, it's like these occasional bursts of very dry, sardonic humor that punctuates very dark, serious human stories. But with this one, I just decided, let's see what happens if I do a story that's just comedy, a story that is completely filtered through my particular sense of humor.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds very interesting. (laughs) so so do you have any favorite movies that kind of are in the body horror subgenre
1: oh yeah a video drum is one of my all-time favorites um i i've always i don't want to say always i have long just been obsessed with video drum uh My dad was a computer programmer in St. Louis during the 1980s. Uh, He worked for Southwestern Bell. He started out as a lineman. And there was this program back in the late 70s, early 80s, where if you agreed to work for Southwestern Bell for X number of years, they would send you to night school, teach you how to work with computers and take you out of the field, put you into the office. And so my dad was one of this first wave of guys who learned computer programming and worked with computers in an office setting in the 1980s. And that was the environment that I grew up around. There was constantly technology and computers and all the sort of stuff around our house when I was a kid. He would take me into his office and I would get to see personal computers like the old black screen, green letters, DOS systems. And so the very first time I saw Videodrome, there was this strange sort of sense of comfort to me in those scenes where James Woods is in Harlan's lab and they're like working on pirating the signals because it's like I knew guys who looked just like both of those characters. And all that technology, it was like this weird going back in time to this safe, comforting period in my past for me. And that just made Videodrome this strange kind of safe feeling nostalgia trip for me. And uh, then with the the, the kind of incorporation of uh, technology into James Wood's story arc and this idea of the fusion of biology and technology it's just been endlessly fascinating to me. The movie just hits so many right notes.
0: Yeah, I don't think a lot of people would pick a Cronenberg film as their comfort film. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, it's society, just like that whole last act. (laughs)
1: that is such a trip
0: it is and i went into it honestly having no idea what to expect like i i went into it like okay like this is very odd like these family dynamics are so odd like this is such a strange movie and i can't put my finger on like what is even happening and then at the end i'm like i don't even know why i tried i don't know what is happening. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by libro fm Libro FM is the first and only company which lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best. Booksellers. I mean, and us. We also have a playlist on there full of books that have been recommended on this podcast books in the freezer special offer you get two audiobooks for the price of one just 14.99 with your first month of membership using code freezerbook. this offer is valid for new members in canada and the united states thank you libro fm for supporting the show but are we ready to talk about some books with body horror
1: yes and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um the, the first one that springs to mind off the top of my head is Lamia by a uh, guy named R.R. R. Walters. And uh, no, 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 no. It's called Ludlow's Mill. It's a bottle Lamia. And R.R. And R. Walters uh, is one of the strangest damn writers whose stuff I've ever read. He had like this brief moments of glory back in the eighties. He was like this million bookseller and probably like me and like 10 other probably very disturbed individuals can talk about his stuff. Now he was this guy, he spent his entire life as a photographer. And then when he was in his sixties, he was caring for his dying father and he decided, Hey, I'm going to try and write a book. And he wrote this book called *The Ritual*, and it was this unexpected bestseller. And the thing about *The Ritual* is that R.R. R. Walters writes his regular characters the way that most other horror authors write, like their serial killers and their villains. Like I always remember, there's this scene, and it's like this, uh, this average like career woman. She's, like, this suburban housewife slash professional photographer, and she's, like, looking out of her bedroom window at night, and she lives by the beach, and, like, the narration says something along the lines of, Looking out at the storm, she thought, as she often did, of a buried, subterranean, ancient temple beneath the ocean with green walls and lightning striking inside. And it's like, yeah, that's what I think of, too, when I look yeah. out at a storm at night.
0: As one does. Yeah. yeah.
1: And he just had this very bizarre, and he, uh, he he describes all of his heroines looking like Wonder Woman. They're all, like, these, like, six-foot-tall Amazonian women who could, like, beat the crap out of people. He just had these very uh, idiosyncratic things about his writing. And and Lidlow's Mill is this very bizarre story. It's, it's about uh, Lamia which in his writing is like this serpentine creature that has to take over women's bodies and then like kill and drink the blood of people in order to sustain itself. And it's been around since like prehistoric times and like takes over the body of this kid's aunt. And then it decides to like seduce him and then like also engage in like this weird mind game with the kid's mom. And like, the kid's mom knows that there's something wrong it's it's just the weirdest damn thing and like the murders in it are like some of the most brutal stuff that I've read in a horror book before it's like weird 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 like very surreal kind of John Watersy and then all of a sudden it takes like this hard left turn and it's like this three-page strangulation sequence and it's like what the hell did I just read <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Well, thank you for filling me in because I looked it up on Goodreads a a bit ago and all it has is a cover. There's like no description, no explanation. I'm like, so what is what is this about? Now I want to know.
1: It's weird because I have uh, I found a couple of articles that ran during R.R. Walter's life about him. And I've actually got to give credit to a guy named Jason Coffin for hooking me up with these. Uh, But there was like this very brief moment in the late 80s where this guy was poised to kind of stand alongside clive barker as like this like neo body horror kind of like lovecraftian writer and i mean he was selling like millions of copies of his books and he was like doing these big author signings where like all these people were coming out to see him and then he passed away you know he, he was already an older man when he started writing and then when he died he just like kind of disappeared and like slipped into obscurity
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, because I had never heard of him, unfortunately.
1: The only reason that I even know who he is is one day my wife and I were at a used bookstore and in the horror paperback section, they had a copy of The Ritual on one of them little plastic stands like with the the wire covered in like the, the, the rubberized plastic and like the cover of it is like this super crazy, lurid thing of like this Medusa looking thing. And over it, it says and, like these big, bold letters are our Walters brings you a novel of erotic terror. And my wife and I saw that. And we just started laughing at it. We bought it as a joke. And then like one day we were sitting around bored on a weekend and it was like, what do you want to do? And it was like, hey, do you want to start reading that book we got? And we started reading it and it's like, what the hell is this? And then we decided to buy his other four books, and that's that's the only reason I know who this guy is, is because like we we bought it on a whim at the bookstore one day.
0: Was it hard to find his other stuff?
1: Um, kind of, sort of. Uh, there's a used bookstore in Tulsa where I grew up called uh, Gardner's Used Books. And it's a repurposed warehouse that has been turned into a used bookstore. It's the biggest used bookstore I've ever been in. And in high school, when I used to go there, pretty much anything I could think of, I could find there. And uh, we went back to visit my brother one summer, and that's where we found Ludlow's Mill and like 20 other copies of The Ritual. And uh, after that, we uh, ended up buying his other books uh, used on Amazon. They were, they were they were fairly cheap. We were getting paperbacks for like $10, $12 um but he he hasn't quite turned into the cult icon that some of the stuff featured in like paperbacks from hell has
0: so on the podcast we use a scare a temperature-based scary scale when writing books so like the scariest level is freezer like the most intense then it's like fridge and room temperature so where do you think ludlow's mill falls on that scale (laughs)
1: probably fridge because it's it's really weird when when people aren't getting brutally strangled to death it's it's just a strange book like there's a scene where the main character's boyfriend tells her son i'm gonna take you to wendy's and like the kid like runs out of his room like giggling and screaming and he's like 15 and he's got like he's like waving his arms over his head and he's like "Woo!" and like the main character's boyfriend and her son are like chasing one another around a car, like shrieking how they're going to Wendy's. And she's just like, Oh, I love him so much. He's such a man. And it's like, again, like what? And then, then you get, like, these I
0: love two... reading books and it's like, yeah, this is how humans <laughs> act. Definitely.
1: <laughs> that, that's what's so remarkable about this guy's writing is he has this deranged courage of his own convictions like this is how people actually think and act and like there's no sense of irony or guile to it it's like this guy sincerely believes that this is how people are and there's just this bizarre level of fascination to reading his stuff and thinking this guy thinks this is all super normal
0: all right it sounds like a trip Oh, yeah. Can you just say again the title and author again for the listeners?
1: Ludlow's Mill. Uh, that's L U uh, D L O. And I realize I start spelling this. In, yeah. L-L-U-D-L-O-W. Ludlow's Mill by R. R. Walters.
0: Wild. <laughs> so my first pick is The Beauty by Aaliyah Whiteley. I picked this for the our episode on, like, weird fiction, but I feel like it definitely fits in here. So this is a, a novella. It's kind of in, like, a, a dystopian subgenre, but it's essentially a world where all women on planet Earth have died uh, of, like, natural causes. Like, they got overtaken by a virus. And so we're following... A group of men who are living communally in the woods like they kind of have a little colony they all live together and essentially have a little community there where they all like take care of each other everyone has their job and their thing and contributes and our main character is nate who is a young man and he is the storyteller of the group and around every night when everyone's around the campfire he tells them stories of the way things used to be he talks about uh, remembering the women and not forgetting the women in their lives um but one day while he is out he comes across this I mean it's hard to describe but I'm essentially gonna say it's like a woman made out of mushrooms like she is just like this mushroom being they have like a very strange interaction they can kind of like telepathically communicate and like they kind of understand each other and there's more and more of these women and community starts getting torn over what they should do about these women because half of them are like we cannot talk to these (laughs) these like mushroom things like come on what are we thinking um and then the other half start having relationships uh with these women and it's, it's very interesting. There are scenes in here that have been just etched into my mind, and I cannot forget. I mean, this is essentially a novel about, like, gender role reversals. And um, when it comes to procreating, there is a scene where those roles are reversed, and it is explained in, in vivid, horrifying detail.
1: <laughs> I was about to say I've got so many questions about this now. <laughs> So, so, so they can like, they can communicate with them like the mushroom women are sentient. Yes. Wow.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is just like wild, but yeah, like that specific scene, I'm like, wow, we didn't have to get this violent, but I mean, I guess essentially the, the very act of it normally is quite violent and disturbing. So I guess it would, (laughs) if we're going to reverse those roles, it would be honestly just as violent.
1: I have questions I'm not sure I want to (laughs) ask.
0: But it's just like, it was very interesting to read about these group dynamics and how, like when this element is introduced, how all of these different people are reacting to like, yeah, we accepted this world where there are no women and now there are these mushroom women. So do we, what do we do? (laughs) Do we just like accept our fate and die out? Or do we, I don't know. (laughs) So for me, it was, definitely a room temperature book I will say in addition to that scene there are there are a lot of other scenes of body horror and I mean it's a it's a novella it's a very short novel you could read it in a day but I thought it, it posed very interesting questions about the in this scenario the switching of like gender dynamics in these situations that was The Beauty by Aaliyah Whiteley it
1: just sounds like I said <laughs> I've just got so many questions I guess I'm going to have to read it to answer them now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So my next pick was Pin by Andrew Niederman. Um, And Andrew Niederman has a very unusual role in the the, the realm of horror literature because he's he's written his own original books, like Pin, that he's got some name recognition for. He actually wrote the book that uh, the Al Pacino, Keanu Reeves, Devil's Advocate was based on. Oh,
0: I didn't know
1: that. Yeah, and then also he is vc andrews uh after the original real vc andrews passed away andrew niederman is the person chosen by vc andrews estate to carry on her name and write under that and continue her books uh, so he has this, uh, this dual career writing his own original Bizarro stuff and then also the continuation of The Flowers in the Attic universe. And that can probably give you an idea of his sensibilities and like his, uh, his approach to horror literature based on the fact that V.C. Andrews' estate chose him to keep writing more Flowers in the Attic books. And Pin is Flowers in the Attic on crack transplanted to the 1980s with an uh i don't want to say upscale upscale is not the right word affluence uh with an affluent jewish family and it's it's strange um it's about this brother and sister and their father is a physician and he teaches them about biology with this medical mannequin that he keeps in the house that he names pin and he like speaks to them through the mannequin assuming the personality of pin to teach them about human biology and then their parents die and the brother and sister are left on their own as young adults and the sister is slightly more well-adjusted and wants to go on to have this normal life, and the brother has developed all of these weird hang-ups and personality tics all built around Pin. And the brother comes to identify with Pin as something approaching a reincarnation of their dad and then also his own alter ego, and he wants him and his sister to continue living together with pin as what he envisions as the like perfect happy nuclear american family and the sister wants to date and get married and she's dating this guy who uh, is a vietnam veteran and who's missing a leg and the fact that this guy is missing a leg just flips this uh, flips the brother's psycho switch because it like plays into the whole like biology and mannequin thing that he's got going on. The boyfriend's got an artificial limb that he like sees as some kind of like weird psychic synchronicity with the pin mannequin. And it is this body horror domestic drama that just keeps going from bad to worse to no it can't get worse, no wait, it just got worse, it can't get any worse than this. Oh my god, it just did. And it's it's not quite like anything else I've ever read. Uh, they they made a movie out of it that soft pedals a lot of the body horror in the book that has the guy who played Lock on Lost as the voice of the mannequin. Like when no wait, is it Lock on Lost or is it the guy This is terrible of me. I always confuse the guy who was Lock on Lost with the guy who was Mike on Breaking Bad. And I know that they are completely different people. But for some reason, I always forget which one of them was the voice of Pin in the movie. And I'm going to verify this really quick. Terry O'Quinn, yes. Yeah, it's called pin. And I realized now why I was confused. Okay, so Terry O'Quinn is the dad in the movie. And then Jonathan Banks, the guy who played Mike on Breaking Bad is the voice of pin. So they're both in it.
0: Oh, wow. This is crazy. So when you said he writes like VC Andrews, and then you talked about this brother and sister and their dad teaching them biology, I was like, ready for it to go a certain way. And then it just went a whole nother way.
1: It goes that way in the book.
0: Oh, okay. I was going to ask. I'm like, does he do a lot of like gothic domestic drama incest stories?
1: Oh, yeah. It super goes that way in the book, except there's there there's also a mannequin incorporated into it. Oh boy. Like like I said, not quite like anything else I've ever read before.
0: I mean, it fits in the in the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've seen Andrew Niederman mentioned a lot, like, in a lot of lists, but I've never actually picked up any of his things.
1: He is, he, he like, R.R. R. Walters is a very idiosyncratic writer. Um, I've read that, I've read another book of his called Reflection, which doesn't seem like it should exist. I think it's the only book I own that has, like, no blurbs on it and, like, no, like, critical reviews is just like here is this thing here is this book from this author of like all this name recognition and it's about this woman who becomes convinced that she is the reincarnation of this woman who lived in the 1950s who killed her husband and she like sees like a newspaper article about this murder and she like becomes obsessed with the idea that she is this other woman's reincarnation and it has like this pretty cool progression of the plot and then it like reaches a point where like all of a sudden they're in the Catskills and like it introduces all these new characters in the third act and then there's like this sudden very abrupt plot dump and then the book just sort of stops and it's just Strange, and I get the impression that either he was up against a deadline and like really rushed and turned it in, or this was always his intention and it's not more well known because it's just such a strangely structured and executed story. But it's yeah. it's weird in a singularly unique way.
0: Yeah, that is odd. So it just like exists out in the world. Yeah. <laughs> huh. What was it called again?
1: Uh, reflection. Oh, interesting.
0: Oh, yeah. So where would you rate pin on the temperature scale?
1: I put pin in the freezer. I put pin <laughs> in like, the back of the freezer, like up against like the ice box, And it's like covered in frost and it's like growing out of the back of your freezer. And you've got to like ship it away with a pick or something. I, I was visiting uh, friends when I was reading that and they had like eight-year-old twins and like i went out one day and i like thought to myself wait you just like left that book sitting on the bedside when i like i like came back to the house and i was like hey hey you haven't let the kids in the room have you and i went and i like hit it in the bottom of my luggage after that,
0: you gotta keep the children safe no one can read this
1: <laughs> i don't think i'm old enough to have read it
0: <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm trying to think who that audience would be so my second pick i went with an anthology um so this is twisted anatomy this is edited by sci-fi and scary as a whole and it's a charity anthology so all the proceeds go to the pulmonary hypertension association and the national domestic violence hotline um and this was really fun because people just got to authors got to play around and do like these little short body horror stories and um for readers who are interested there are content warnings in the back of the collection for each story that you can look up and see but it starts with a bang it just the opening story bloodbogged by red lego just immediately sets the tone and i'm really just going to describe it as menstrual horror it just like doesn't hold back <laughs> And the story is called Bloodbogged, And it is just like, I I started reading the collection and I was like, okay, so this is where we're starting. I mean, I, I can't wait to see where we go from here if like this is where we are starting. <laughs> there was a lot of really good stories. So there was one I liked called With Every Fiber of My Being by Jennifer Carstens. And it's just this woman and... I mean, her doctors think she's being a bit of a hypochondriac, but she is just like convinced that she has an infection inside her, but she keeps going in for all these tests and everyone tells her that she's fine and there's nothing wrong with her, but she's convinced that there's like something inside of her and she thinks she like sees it moving under her skin and like if she can just get it and take it out and show them, (laughs) then like her problems will be solved. So, I mean, I'm sure you can guess where that story goes. There was ones that just had like really fun titles. There was a a story called The Real Jurassic Park Was the Gender Dysphoria We Felt Along the Way (laughs) by Jennifer Lee
1: Rossman. (laughs) I just love that title.
0: Yeah. But there was just like, it was very interesting the directions that everyone went. There was some more like dystopian sci-fi ones. Like There was one where you got sentenced to a place where you got like a specific punishment for your crime and it was like, these really crazy things that could happen to you. The collection ends with uh previous guest, Haley Piper's story called Suck You Tips for Succu Bliss. And it's just written as this self-help manual for those who have recently been tethered to an infernal vagina monster. And just practical tips on how to make the day-to-day easier, how to like, well, now that this is your reality, like sometimes this is gonna happen. And like, here's what you need to do. But just like this very helpful, like, So basically what has happened to you is this and like sometimes you're going to have to do this and that's okay. We're going (laughs) to, this is just like a very funny way to end the whole collection. I just had a ton of fun with it. I think if you're looking for short little body horror stories, this is the way to go. Like I said, it's a charity anthology. It's also on Kindle Unlimited and that is Twisted Anatomy. I mean I think it's probably colon an anthology of body horror and that was edited by the sci-fi and scary group um temperature wise I mean it's an an anthology so short stories were kind of everywhere you can't really rate a whole anthology (laughs) but
1: it was fun so uh I originally had something else but you talking about an anthology just like triggered this in my mind (laughs) and this is a uh it's right there on the cusp of a novella and a short story. And if I can, like, spread the word of this, then, then I want to do that. It's uh, called Meat House Man by uh, George R.R. R. Martin, the, the, the Game of Thrones oh. guy. And, like, he wrote this, like, back in the 70s before he really took off as a fantasy author. And I can never remember where it was originally published. But I became aware of it because it was in one of the Splatterpunks anthologies that came out at the uh, end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. And it's just not like anything else he's done before. And it's not like anything else I've quite read before. And it's like kind of straddles the cusp of sci fi and horror. And it's set in a future where companies have monetized death by claiming dead bodies and outfitting them with these cybernetic implants and turning dead bodies into laborers. And there are meat handlers who are these people that control dead bodies with what I in my mind reading the story imagine, like the old Nintendo Power Glove. And like they use like technology to manipulate dead bodies for use as like mining drones or for gladiatorial combat for people's entertainment or for prostitution. And it's the story of this young kid named Traeger. He's like in his early 20s and he gets assigned to a mining colony and uh, he gets thrust in with all of these older macho, very like toxic masculinity miners who like induct him into like this all male world of being isolated and living in this mining colony. And they start taking him to the, the titular meat house, which is this brothel where all of the women are these dead bodies who have been turned into like cyborgs with these implants. And he is straddling this fascination with going there with like trying to find and meet and date a real live living, breathing human woman. And for a story with his grotesque, a setup as that I've never read a story before that has so accurately captured the feelings of, like, a bad first love. Like, we read so many stories about, like, first loves that are these sweet, romantic, like, positive experiences. And, like, you very rarely read about a first love that just, like, goes completely down the tubes. And this kid just gets put through the ringer, and there is an emotional honesty and rawness and realness to it that just lands in a really right way for me and I think it's probably the horror story that's just had the biggest emotional impact on me with like finishing it and setting it down and just being like wow that hurt
0: oh wow I knew he had written like in the sci-fi like kind of horror space but I didn't know about this book
1: See, I didn't know about that either. Like, I knew him solely through Game of Thrones. I had no idea prior to this that he had any kind of, like, sci-fi background before, like, going into fantasy literature. One of the really intelligent literary things that he does with it is that he treats everything that's going on in the story very casually. And he'll occasionally drop these little one word or, like, phrases that, like kind of clue you into the more visceral visceral reality of what's going on and one of the when you finish the story there's really that big emotional gut punch that hits you and then you wait a little bit so you kind of sit on it and then like all of the like visceral implications and like what you've really been reading about really hits you and it's like wait a minute they're dead bodies with like cybernetic implants in them and like they were people and, like, they had these lives and, like, now they're, like, for eternity, like, working as mining drones. And it's this very profound existential terror that hits you. It's, like, not even visceral anymore. It's just, like, the the spiritual and moral and, like, practical physical implications of it. It's, like, it's behind the freezer. It's on the wall behind the freezer. It's just, like, disturbing at this, like, soul level.
0: And what was, what was the title, title of it again?
1: Um, meat house man
0: so it actually transitions well to my final pick which is tender is the flesh by Agustina Basterica which was one of my favorite reads from last year I had a hard time saying what it's about so I just have the synopsis here because I feel like it just gets it better than I ever could So, working at the local processing plant, Marcos is in the business of slaughtering humans, though no one calls them that anymore. His wife has left him, his father is sinking into dementia, and Marcos tries not to think too hard about how he makes a living. After all, it happened so quickly. First, it was reported that an infectious virus has made all animal meat poisonous to humans. Then, governments initiated the transition. Now, eating human meat, or special meat, is legal. Marcos tries to stick to the numbers consignments processing then one day he's given a gift a live specimen of the finest quality though he's aware that any form of personal contact is forbidden on pain of death little by little he starts to treat her like a human being and soon he becomes tortured by what he has lost and what might still be saved.
1: That is fascinating because, like, something weird that has always bounced around in the back of my head is what would it look like if the Texas Chainsaw Massacre were told from Leatherface's point of view? And I, I think what you just described is kind of that.
0: Yeah, it's just uh, uh, so many parts of it made me shudder. That I mean, the way that in this fictional universe, that society is just so okay with this and I mean through you're in Marcus's Marcos's perspective and he struggles with it a little bit and he tries to like distance himself from like you know being in the slaughterhouse aspect of it and like there's a scene where he's there's people that are interviewing for jobs in the slaughterhouse and he's like walking them through and showing them the the different areas and just these line of people that at this point like it's been going on for a while like they have been bred for this they know nothing else they they didn't these weren't people that had lives these were people that were bred solely to be slaughtered as meat (laughs) um and like he's making sure that none of these people have like video cameras like nothing that happens here can leave the building and like people get sick and they can't handle just like the the process (laughs) that happens but also just that is horrific but also the fact that like the people he deals with and like the vendors and talking about like the selling of specimens and grading these specimens and just how like nonchalant and business-like it is is like chilling too and like he gets gifted this Woman, this specimen that is supposed to be like, a you know, like a, a big promotional gift for him for doing a great job like last quarter, and it's just like, oh my gosh, yikes! And then his sister is like terrible and wants to use him to like get good meat, like for to host a party to have good social standing, and just like the way that society has just completely changed to be okay with this, and like the the weird mental separation like they aren't people anymore is just chilling.
1: there's just so much to unpack there I don't even know where to start I mean just conceptually and I haven't even read it I mean that (laughs) that's just such a complex setup and idea that's that's fascinating
0: oh yeah it's it's there's so much and I I'm gonna reread it at some point but it was one of my favorites from last year it's from it was translated from Spanish. I think the writers from Argentina. But it was just like such a crazy concept and just like a wild story that had me like up until the ending. Like yikes. <laughs>
1: That, that really is, though. I mean, like, I'd be interested to, to actually read it. And like, I mean, I've got all these ideas bouncing in my head right now. Like, is this a metaphor for X, Y, Z? Is it like, talking about this? Is it like, supposed to be addressing like, that's so like, I'm I'm really curious now.
0: Yeah, like, I, I'm with you on that. Like, I went, I heard people talking about it, too. And I went into it, like, okay, are we talking about, like, the way we do this? And yeah, it's fascinating. There's a lot of layers to it. <laughs> a lot of layers and a lot of interpretations, I feel like, of things that she's exploring. But, yeah, that's a freezer book for me, if there ever was one. just the the whole setup, I mean, there's like visceral descriptions of like these uh, specimens being readied uh, for consumption in their different formats, you know, within this slaughterhouse and just, again, the nonchalant way that humanity has just decided that this is the new normal, this special meat. Wow. mean just don't think about it.
1: I don't. Do, do you read uh, Reddit at all?
0: Ah, uh, sometimes.
1: The, the last I, I I got into it last summer just because during quarantine I needed something to do, and this uh, this Reddit thread went viral, and it was this this teenage girl talking about how her family was falling apart because her dad had been surreptitiously switching out the meat that he served at barbecues and dinners with, like, the exotic meat of animals that he had, like, gone overseas and killed. And he, like, had this fascination with, like, going to Africa and South America and the outback and, like, hunting and killing weird exotic animals. And, like, people had found out about this and, like, people had stopped talking to their family and, like, it was causing this rift in her parents' relationship because the dad kept doing it. And, like, just very casually dropped in here was the author of the thread saying that her mom had told her, your dad has done something even more terrible than, like, serve kangaroo meat at dinner and, like, I don't feel right telling you about it. And Reddit's consensus was that he had probably been obtaining this thing that's called bushmeat from Africa, which which is pygmy, uh, where they there's, like, an apparently a black market trade in, like, human flesh in the form of pygmies that have been killed and processed and like just all of this just reminds me of that yeah. and like a lot of people thought that it was fake people were debating whether or not it was real yeah. but this this just reminds me of of that thread from right around this time last year yikes that's a
0: crazy situation i mean if anything's going to convince you to be vegetarian i think it's that <laughs> if you just like never trust what kind of meat is being served to you I would just have trust issues forever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. So, that, my last pick, is Tender is the Flesh by Agustina Basterica. I think that came, well, it was translated. I'm sure it came out before in Argentina. It was translated last year. Those are our picks and something I like to ask everyone that comes on the show is what is a chilling obsession? What is something in horror that you've been enjoying?
1: You know, I hate to say this, but with, with everything going on in the world, I've kind of been going through like, for lack of a better word, a horror detox. Uh, I spent the latter part of quarantine catching up on all of the comedies that I've missed, all the dramas, the TV shows, um, So I'm kind of like out of the loop for maybe the first time in my life on what's going on in horror right now. And that's that's a very strange feeling for me. And it's like something that I want to change. But it's just I I just felt the need to kind of take a step back away from it for a while. And, you know, I'm I'm getting enough horror on the news. I'm getting enough horror when I log on to Twitter, look at social media, Uh, you know, hopefully as we move forward into a 2021 that has much less real-life horror, I can start to enjoy the fictional stuff again.
0: I feel you on that. So what comedies have you been enjoying?
1: I'm going to sound like the biggest dork saying this, but I caught up on all the Adam Sandler movies that I missed (laughs) over the years. Uh, You Don't Mess With the Zohan. Um, Click actually came out when I was working in a theater in college, and I only ever saw bits and pieces of that going into, like pick up garbage or like catch the last five minutes of it as I like got in there to sweep it out. Uh, But that was fun. It was just, you know, fun, dumb stuff to tune out to and just, you know, kind of turn off all of my worry circuits for a while and just lose myself to raw stupidity for two hours at a time.
0: (laughs) What's your favorite of them?
1: I really enjoyed, you know, mess with the Zohan. There was just something like delightfully, uniquely bonkers about that uh my uh, my mother's side of the family is jewish and like i i personally identify as jewish and even though adam sandler himself has like this kind of low-key strain of jewishness that flows through a lot of his comedies i really love the way that he foregrounded so much of like the idiosyncrasies of american jewish culture And uh, Eastern Jewish culture into that movie and like wove it into the, the plot in this very fun and absurd way that was poking fun at a lot of stuff, but at the same time doing it in kind of a loving, gentle way. And I think there's also just some strange nostalgia for me because when I made the decision like, okay, I'm taking this break from horror, I'm taking this break from dark stuff, that was the movie that I kicked it off with. And so it just kind of occupies this strange sort of special sentimental spot for me in terms of bright spots that existed in 2020.
0: That's good. I don't think I've, I don't think I ever got around to watching Don't Mess With the so <laughs> I think it's a blind spot in my Adam Sandler filmography. (laughs)
1: It's weird in a way that a lot of his other movies aren't. Like the very first scene of the movie is like this 10-minute sequence that is stylized as like a parody of 1960s and 70s Israeli beach movies. And it's got a lots of absurdist humor in it and a lot of like strange psych gags in it and like stuff that you don't see in a lot of his other movies. It kind of stands apart from the standard Adam Sandler filmography.
0: Yeah, that sounds interesting.
1: It's it's different.
0: Yeah, yeah very, very different. different. And another thing I like to ask guests that come on this show is what their final girl song would be. But you actually have quite a few final girl songs in a way.
1: So when I was writing my very first book, Our Lady of the Inferno, uh, I came up with the idea to do a soundtrack for it. Uh, it's set in 1983. And as this kind of conceptual exercise, I started looking at songs that the characters in the book could conceivably have heard on the radio or seen on MTV during the specific week in 1983 that the book takes place. And so in order to get onto the soundtrack, the songs had to have been commercially available in June of 1983, and uh, they had to have been... uh, In this certain week in June 1983, the week that uh, Sally Ride went up on the Challenger. I've since forgotten the dates because I'm terrible with numbers. And uh, in putting this together, I also decided all of the songs had to either actually get referenced in the book or the songs themselves somehow had to thematically tie into the story, either in the lyrics of the song or the titles of the song, or what the songs were conceptually or thematically about. So that if you were to listen to this soundtrack in order, it would almost kind of tell the story of the book or complement the story of the book. And when I was doing this, I I decided for myself, or I wanted to decide for myself, what different songs in here are sort of the anthems Four different characters in the story. What are different characters' favorite songs? What songs in this list speak to my main characters? And for my final girl, Ginny, there were two in particular that I settled on. Uh, one of them was Games People Play by the Alan Parsons Project, uh, because in the story, she is. This very serious, mostly put-together person, the story in a lot of ways is the the story of her kind of falling apart and then putting herself back together. But uh, superficially, she's always the most in control, most put-together person in the room. And in building the character, I was thinking to myself, what kind of music does she listen to when she's alone, when she just kind of cut loose? What what does she dance to when nobody else is around and she can just be herself? And the answer came back, it's the Alan Parsons Project Games People Play. Uh, I don't know why it was that specifically. Uh, I first heard that song when I was interning at a radio station in college, and the DJ was this old 70s rocker dude who just had this encyclopedic knowledge of all these great deep cuts and, like, B-sides. And uh, he always would have this part of the show called the Mid-Morning Moldy Oldie where he would play one of those. And that's the first time I heard the Ellen Parsons project. And I was going through listening to all these songs from the late seventies and early eighties. And I came back across games people play. And I was just like, that's it. That's, that's what Ginny rocks out to when she can put all of her cares aside for a second. And then at the time that I was writing the book, uh, I hadn't become, and please tell me if I'm rambling too much. Uh, okay. I can talk for like two hours if you cut me loose. Um, At the time I was writing the book, I was working full-time as an optometric assistant, and I was uh, coming home at nights and writing to try and get my foot into the door of horror journalism and fiction. And on my lunch breaks, there was uh, on one side of the optometrist's office a Gold's gym where I had a membership so I could go on my lunch break and exercise. And on the other side of us was this locally owned health food and supplement store. And I would go over there and sometimes get energy drinks or pre-workouts or like protein drinks. And the one time I we went over there, the owner's son was working there and he's like, hey, man, I got this great new pre-workout, man. You want to try it for free, man? It's it's good, clean, burning energy. I've always remembered that clean, burning energy. And I tried it out and I went over to the gym and I had like the work out of my life I was like lifting more weight than I'd ever lifted before and I was like running six miles an hour on the treadmill and it was just like oh my god this is the greatest stuff ever and so I started buying this stuff from the guy by like the tin and I was like getting like really jacked up and I was like doing really great cardio and after a while I started to sometimes get really emotional afterwards and like feel like really overwhelmed and Sometimes just like strangely euphoric and I'm driving home one night. Uh, My shift ended early and I was driving home. It was right at sunset during a time of the year when the the sun is starting to set earlier. And it's just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I'm just driving down the highway and the sun is setting and I'm just like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in the world. And on the radio, the Dire Straits Skateaway comes on. And I've never heard the song before. And it's playing, and it's like a Friday, and the sun is setting, and the whole world is like this golden, orange, beautiful glow. And I like pull over on the side of the highway and I listen to Skate Away, and I just break down sobbing. And I'm just like sitting there behind the wheel of my car, sobbing and listening to Skate Away, and thinking that this is like the most fantastic, transcendental moment of my life. And a couple of weeks later, they shut down the health food store because the owner's son got arrested for meth trafficking, Wow! (laughs) which explained a lot about that (laughs) pre-workout. So I stopped, of course, taking the pre-workouts and leveled out after that. And I can now tell people that I once spent three months unknowingly working out on something that's was very closely chemically related to math. But when I was writing the story, I wanted my character, I wanted Ginny to have something that she loved that was transcendental. Um, She's stuck on 42nd Street in early 1980s New York. Uh, She is the right-hand woman for this sleazy gangster who runs a stable of hookers. She's caring for her younger sister who's paralyzed She's sinking into alcoholism, and I wanted her to have something that she loved that spoke to her of better things and of possibilities beyond this life, and the things that she could have, and the existence that could be hers if she could just escape from it. And I remember that feeling of listening to Skate Away in that sunset, and I was like, that's her feeling too. She listens to Skate Away, and she's not in this world, and she's the person that she wants to be. And I dropped Away" into the book at two key points. And that, to me, ultimately became her anthem and her real meaty final girl song.
0: Wow. Yeah, I, well, those are very good stories and reasons, but I will be sure to add both of those to the playlist. They will be in good company with <laughs>
1: I was about to say, I skimmed through the list that you sent me, and those are that's a fantastic list. I've got to put that on my Spotify for my, for my drives.
0: Yeah, I will have to, um, in the show notes, I will link uh, your Spotify playlist for Our Lady of the Inferno. So if people want to check that out, they can. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for joining me today and talking about body horror. Uh, yeah, and uh, mentioning a lot of books that I had never heard of
1: that's what i love doing this stuff I, I love like sharing things with people you know i hear about like these these the gatekeepers and they're like oh you don't know this you're not a real horror fan if you haven't seen this or read this and it's like oh fuck you i love sharing like weird shit that other people haven't heard of that's like one of my great joys is like finding these weird obscure things then like sharing them with other people and like being yeah. able to talk about them with other people
0: yeah, that's been the fun of it. And I mean, yeah, I mean, there's just so much when it comes to body horror. I mean, there's a ton of stuff we didn't mention. Like we like lightly touched on Clive Barker, but you know, he wasn't like one of our picks. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of things that we miss. But I, I love hearing about these like bonkers <laughs> books that you'd like really have to dig to find.
1: If you haven't read either of the Splatterpunks anthologies, those just have so many fantastic body horror stories in them.
0: I will have to do that. So again, thank you so much for (laughs) coming on. Yeah.
1: Yeah, this has been fantastic. And you've you've given me a couple of uh, things to add to my read list.
0: Oh, God. So I feel like my my mission is complete. And where can people find you online before you go?
1: Uh, You can find my books on Amazon. Uh, Google my name, uh, Preston Fossil, uh, F-A-S-S-E-L, which I realize now is staring you in the face if you've clicked on the name of this episode. (laughs) Uh, And then I'm on Twitter. It's at Preston Fossil. All right,
0: will do. And thanks again. Thank you. Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod, on Instagram at Books in the Freezer, at Facebook at Facebook.com slash Books in the Freezer. And we're also on TikTok at Books in the Freezer. You can send us an email at Books in the Freezer at gmail.com. If you would like to support the podcast, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash books in the freezer with a $1, 3 and a $5 level with all kinds of perks like early access to episodes, group chats, movie nights, and bonus episodes. So go over there and check that out. Another way to support the show is to use the Amazon link. It'll be in the show notes. You click on it, it takes you to Amazon, and you would just do your normal Amazon shopping like you would usually do, except we get a little bit of a kickback from that. So that is another thing you can do. But of course, you don't have to spend any money to support the podcast. Word of mouth is huge. Just talking about it, posting it on social media is very helpful. Also, leaving a review on a site like Apple Podcasts is so important to small indie podcasts like this one so again thank you to all of you who have taken the time to do that already it means a lot and it made a huge difference so thank you again also fun news if you haven't followed on social media we recently hit 250,000 downloads which is a huge milestone um We've had the podcast about three and a half years and released about a hundred episodes. I've lost count because when I started doing bonus episodes, like I didn't count them along with normal episodes and then I took just the numbers off of them. So I feel like my count got all messed up somewhere along the way. So I honestly don't know how many episodes I've released. I think according to Podbean, it's been a hundred ish, but it was really exciting to hit that milestone on my birthday. So thank you to all of you who have spread the word or helped or, you know, downloaded. It was just so great. So again, thank you for that. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N or on Instagram as that's what she read and that's that's with two A's. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Books in the Freezer.